Disclaimer. Please do not email us about the historical inaccuracies we are sure to make. We are not historians. We are idiots. Welcome to Anachronismo, a historical podcast for your comedy senses. I'm Max. I'm Jackie. I'm Noel. And joining us this week is Fooey. Hi, I'm Fooey. So this week, uh, we'll be talking about John Taylor, the water poet, and his uh, perambulations around the UK. Um, The founding of the Smithsonian Institution. And the Diamond Necklace Affair. Ooh. Is that like a pearl necklace? Or is that like a diamond necklace? It's, it's like a diamond necklace, but it was acquired under dubious circumstances. Ooh. Like what? Like dubes? No. Like smoking dubers? Not like that at all, actually. Like a bunch of ducks got together and were like, hey, let's get that diamond necklace. And no, but that would be a much better story. You're right, that's duckiest circumstances. Let the record show that Fooey is... Uh, rubbing the bridge of his nose in frustration. Oh, yep. <laughs> I live uh, with him. It's horrifying. Yeah. Uh, so Fui is uh, our co-host and my roommate, uh, and will be joining us this week. He is a big uh, history buff, and I'm quite excited about uh, sharing the air with him. Aww. Yeah. I know. I'm a sweetheart. Uh, let's all praise me. Um, <laughs> Let the record show that Max is very adorable right now. I'm pretty cute, you guys. Uh, cool. So. Uh, John Taylor, the water poet. So I'm going to start us off with some historical background. So, London Bridge. It's falling down. Uh, it fell down, but hasn't yet at this point in our story. Okay. London Bridge was built in 1176 as the only way into or out of the city of London. Naturally, this made it a prime piece of real estate. By the 1400s, the bridge was covered in stores and houses most of which had been built into towering arches that leaned uh, against each other Ugh. across the width of the bridge. Uh, the passable width of the bridge shrank from 26 feet when it was built to 8 feet Ugh. and was daily full of gawkers, shoppers, and sightseers, meaning that it took at least an hour to cross. Ugh. Obviously, this was a huge hindrance to travelers and merchants both. So, why did it take until 1750, uh, over 600 years later, Sorry, under 600 years later, almost 600 years later, for a second bridge to be built to relieve some of this traffic. Uh, you know. Wait, can we guess? Can yes, we guess? Please. <laughs> Alright. So, why it took 600 years to mm-hmm. build another bridge? Mm-hmm. Almost 600 almost years. 600 years. Everyone who built the first bridge was dead and no one remembered. No. I mean, yes, but bridge technology wasn't lost in some sort of Mad Max with bridges situation. Or some sort of water world with bridges situation. <laughs> Try bridge! I'm going to put it down. When was the... Uh, out myself as not a historian. When was the Black Plague? The mid-14th century. Okay, I'm going to say Black Plague. Also incorrect. Because there's still four, 300 years in between. Yeah, but, you know, you got to have a mourning period. What about the time before? 400 years of mourning. <laughs> That's enough for, like, 200 stages of grief. So the first 200 years, it was a pervasive, almost cocky, if it ain't 
and if it ain't broke, don't fix it attitude. Mm-hmm. And then the Black Plague came through, and then hundreds centuries of mourning. And then everyone was dead, so no one remembered the Black Plague, and then they could build the new bridge. We're right. You're very wrong. <laughs> Fui, would you like to wildly speculate? Witchcraft. Oh, no. But maybe. You can't prove that it wasn't. No, but it was boatcraft. Sorry. Not witchcraft, but watercraft. I know nothing about the geography of London, and my hope is that nowhere was close enough that they could build a bridge to touch something else. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's that's just wrong. (laughs) They eventually built a second bridge to touch other things. No, just well, you mean London's just hovering in the middle of a void, and there's no no like like, water by water. But the water is really wide everywhere except for where the existing bridge is. Yeah, like and used bridge, to be techno- a bri- bridge technology isn't there yet, and they can't go that far. <laughs> um, well, they could have just built a second bridge, like right by the right by it, right yeah, next they to it. No, built a bridge literally right next. It was to a it. really sharp angle. Oh, I see. <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's like the it's like the island of London, just stabbing towards shore. And everywhere else just can't do it. Max, you weren't there. You didn't see it. It never would have taken off. Everyone who saw this is dead. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, what it was was that uh, there were two main factors that kept London, the London Bridge from being reproduced. First, there was the matter of defense. It suited the city quite well to have only one way in or out and to have that to be very slow. Um, it meant that any invading army would have to go through the swamp or come by sea. It would leave a lot of time to prepare defenses. I'm imagining the army trying to get through and all like the shopkeepers are like, No, wait a minute, look at these cool postcards. You look like a handsome young man. Maybe I could introduce you in this vanity mirror. Well, I've got this London to attack. Oh, Knickknacks for sale, special for barbarians. <laughs> you want to know how good you'll look as you're sacking London, don't you? Well, I do look good. You're so dashing, yes. Perhaps a custom portrait or a caricature? Look, that's you, and that's you holding someone's head by its hair. And you have rollerblades on. Ooh. <laughs> Can't know how long you've been pillaging without a bespoke hourglass. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, name engravings on him while you wait. Uh, so yeah, defense. Um, but also, the second and, and almost as important factor was the influence of a body of professionals known as the Watermen's Guild. So for almost as long as London has existed, the river has been full of barges and ferrymen. They took people across who didn't want to wait on the bridge and took goods out to ships and across the river to the city. Watermen were crucial to making London work, and they knew it. In his 1598 Survey of London, John Stowe estimated that there were close to 40,000 licensed watermen on the Thames. It took skill to navigate the river, which was deep, wide, and swift-flowing, and was also full of human waste, uh, <laughs> which you just don't want to do. better and better. It makes it more treacherous and more stanky. Every single river that people built on up until, like, the late 19th century was, like, 40 to 60% shit by volume. It's disgusting. You should have seen the fish. Eey. No, you you don't want to see those. You, you couldn't see them if you wanted to. pretty gross. Um, so often, a passenger would negotiate a fare on the bank with, with a bargeman, only to find themselves stopped in the middle of the river and forced to renegotiate the rest of the, the fare for the way across, <laughs> with the bargeman in a much more favorable negotiating position. Oh! <laughs> 
We can just stay here in this poop. I don't care. <laughs> I don't even smell it anymore. Well, I brought a fishing pole. I can live here forever. Uh, oh, what are you going to do? Swim? Swim through the poop? I got my fishing rod here and my toilet right here. <laughs> one goes in, one comes out. <laughs> mm. So in 1555, these workers formed the Company of Watermen and instituted a seven-year apprenticeship, put an end to the worst excesses of the mid-river turnaround, and organized Wait, a... what does that mean? Uh, stopping in the middle of the river to renegotiate oh, terms. Okay. Like, they still did it, but, like, they wouldn't, like, let someone just, like, die out there. <laughs> um, did that happen? That would make us look bad. I mean, I don't think they ever deliberately killed anyone, but there, I think, were some cases where someone just fell off. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, fell off or fell off? Uh, well, unfortunately, the survival of quotation marks doesn't uh, bear out past 300 years. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, they also organized strong, concerted opposition to the building of new bridges because they knew which side their bet bread was buttered on, and it was the river side. I'm so nervous about this cat. <laughs> She's going to get you. She's going to get you. Uh, the watermen also organized strong opposition to the building of new bridges. Um, this close-knit community even developed their own argot, uh, based mainly on swearing and insults. Um, Césarade Saussier in 1725 wrote, Most bargemen are very skillful at this mode of warfare using singular and quite extraordinary terms, generally quite coarse and dirty. I cannot possibly explain them to you. So it should come as no surprise that from this milieu of verbal invention and verbal warfare, the watermen should give birth to their very own poet laureate, one John Taylor, the self-styled water poet. <laughs> uh, so John was born in 1580 in London, and at the age of eight was apprenticed as a waterman. In the late years of the Anglo-Saxon War, he joined the fleet of the Earl of Essex and was present at the 1597 sacking of Cadiz, one of the greatest English victories of that war, exceeded only by the defeat of the Spanish Armada. He later said, It was being present at this event that convinced me that I was worthy of greatness. After the war, he returned to London and worked as a waterman on the, th on the Thames. At some point in all of this, he had picked up not just the skill of literacy, but the urge to write and he began to self-publish books. But not just any books. He wrote the Uncle sort of... Uncle John's toilet reader for the thing. <laughs> <laughs> for the world's largest toilet. <laughs> I just imagine he gets like someone like halfway through the river and he turns to you and goes, want to read my manuscript? <laughs> no. You know, I got this screenplay I've been working on. <laughs> it's about a man who doesn't pay up halfway through a river and so he drowns. <laughs> You it's ever heard of sticks? <laughs> <laughs> That's right, the sticks that I use to hit people who don't pay inflated fares. <laughs> Into this poop water. <laughs> poop water's deep. Poop water knows all. It's kind of like butt soup, but it's poop water. I'm going to have to edit all that. <laughs> Why did I edit butt soup out of episode yeah. 8? You could release the Hidden Lost episode called the Butt Soup Chronicles. I, I don't keep the stuff I edit out. I just delete oh. it. But you're right. I wish I'd kept that dark psychological thriller. How are you going to do special editions then? Um, I won't. 
You're right, you're right. I'm going to release bobbleheads of all of us with each special edition. Yeah. That's how you make the money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you got to have that sweet, sweet merch. Yeah, that sweet fliff. Um, so, he didn't write just any books. He wrote the kind of accepted dare travelogue that would become uh, popular in the 2000s. Uh, he was a little prescient in that way. So he wrote about... Wait, can you describe accepted dare like li- adventure? Like, like uh, going and living uh, according to biblical law for a year is what I, I mean. Or uh, the book Yes Man, where the guy just says yes to everything. Um, you know, those those travelogues are like, I got this hair up my ass. A- I got this hair up what? my ass idea. What? What? You haven't heard that expression? <laughs> no. Hair up my ass idea? I've yeah. heard the phrase, I got the hair up my ass, but not the hair up my ass idea. Well, I think you're you're slapping things together there. I mean, that is what Shakespeare did, and John Taylor, the water poet. <laughs> nice segue. You yes. know what? Hair hair up your butt is like <laughs> like a wild, gets crazy you, idea. It gets you to butt soup. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you don't want a hair on your butt soup. So while we while it we, looks like chicken noodle, but it ain't chicken noodle. <laughs> butt soup. It's tapeworm. Anyway, so what kind of books did he write? So, I'm glad you asked, Jackie, and got us off this horrifying topic. I brought us here. (laughs) So, he wrote about things like his solo voyage from London to Queensborough, uh, which is on the Isle of Sheppey Kent. Um, The Isle of Sheppey Kent. Oh. Which he reached in a boat made of paper using two stockfish, which are dried, unsalted cod, tied to canes as oars. This was ostensibly done to promote the virtues of hemp seed. What? Well, wait, wow. run that, wait, run that by me. <laughs> How would it do that thing? Okay, so uh, he built a boat out of paper. Yes. Then he tied two dried fish to canes. Yeah. And then okay. he rowed all the way from London to a tiny island. All right. To promote the virtues of hemp seed. Yeah, the, the, the point where I'm disconnecting is how doing that thing promotes the virtues of hemp seed in any way. Uh, they believe that's what they call the hook. That's how you get you get you to read. You can read. Uh, you can read all about it in his book on the virtues of hemp seed. Oh my god! Are you not going to tell us why? <laughs> Do you know? Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I did not read the book. <laughs> um, uh, but it's probably one of those like I was raised on chicken fat type things where you like ate a shitload of hemp seed and it's like now I'm Popeye the sailor manning over the this this ocean. In a boat made of paper with fish for oars. And the cat has left, and the danger with it. Ladies and gentlemen, the cat has left the building. Uh, for another stunt, he traveled from London to Edinburgh with no money, a journey he recounted in his snappily titled 1618 book, The Penniless Pilgrimage, or The Moneyless Perambulation of John Taylor, alias The King Majesty's Water Poet, how he travailed on foot from London to Edinburgh in Scotland, not carrying any money to or fro, neither begging, borrowing, or asking meat, drink, or lodging. So how'd he do it? <laughs> <laughs> A hunting, mainly. I was going to ask if he had an editor or not. Oh, uh... Probably this, not, this based on well that title. Editors. Bob Schilling, the water editor. <laughs> he only read half the book and then said he needs to pay more. 
the big problem is that he lived under the sea, and so the pages just get soggy. Unlike uh, the water poet, he wasn't a bargeman, he was a merman. Mm, mm. Oh, what do mer people write their crap. books on? Kelp. That checks out. Yeah. Wait, what do they write yeah. with? That's them? what they make their boats out of. Squid ink. That's, that's inhumane. I mean, they're mermen, so yes. It's not in mermaid. Think about it, Noel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Noel has ima- tied an imaginary noose around his neck. And- no, don't do it. Don't do it, Noel. No. No. Noel, you have so much to live for. Choose life, Noel. No. Choose mer life. I don't think you're strong enough. <laughs> Can only get halfway. Um, you know, when I'm down, I just think about the island of Sheppy Kent. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say, when I'm down, I just think about Noel hanging himself. <laughs> it gets me through most working days. But that was the Sheppy most Kent delightful is... place I've ever heard. Sheppy Kent? That Are you just imagining so it's an island full of shepherd dogs? Yes. Australian you shepherds? saw the look on my face. I met all <laughs> named Kent. Sheppy Kent. Uh, I mean, yeah, uh, apparently a big problem he had was getting back because those dogs immediately ate his fish. <laughs> <laughs> and then he had to cure without salt. And so he had to keep the dogs thing. away while he was doing it. And everyone knows dogs just love fish sitting out in the sun covered in salt. They really do. <laughs> it's like dog heroin. He saved that for his follow-up book on the eradication of dogs. Oh. It sold much less well. Did not sell well. Right, no, you can um, hang yourself now. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he also invented his own language called uh, Barmudan. Uh, that's B-A-R-M-O-O-D-A-N, which likely owed a great deal to the argot of the watermen. Uh, that is to say, mostly swears. Um, he wrote a poem about old Tom Parr, who allegedly lived to be 152 years old, and wrote a book about the comings and goings of the newfangled coaches that ran through England, recounting in it both the exact schedules of said coaches... And the many times he almost came to blows with coachmen who were suspicious of him watching them and taking notes. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, John Taylor published his over 150 works through a sort of uh, subscription system. He would propose a book, then ask for contributions from readers. When he'd raised enough money, for example, over 1,600 people subscribed to his book about traveling to Edinburgh. He would go on his journey write the book, and sell it for the promised amounts. If you pledged and didn't pay, then in the next book he published, he would devote a part of the foreword to chastising you and casting aspersions upon your character. <laughs> uh, I have here uh, a an excerpt from his book, A Kixie Winsy. Uh, the foreword, in fact, uh, where he chastises some people. <clears throat> I have published this pamphlet to let my rich debtors understand that as often as I meet them, I do look that they should pay me. And although I am shamefaced in not asking my due, yet I would not have them shameless in detaining it from me, because the sums are but small and very easy for them, in general, to pay, and would do me as particular good to receive. Secondly, I have sent into the world to inform some that though their wants do shun and avoid my sight and company, that they are much deceived in my disposition, 
for I ever did esteem an honest heart and a willing mind, as well as their performances. Thirdly, there are some great men, who by reason of their extraordinary employments, my small acquaintance, and less means of access unto them, with my want of impudency, and their men want of courtesy to inform them, all these are lets and demurs against my satisfaction. Lastly, the daily abuses that I have concerning the books of my travels, wherein I am accused for lies and falsifications, but I do and ever will steadfastly stand to the truth of every tittle of it, except the abuse that I did to Maester Hilton at Daintree, and that was not on known malice neither, but on blind ignorant information, and there is a second edition of my books of travels coming forth, wherein I will satirize, cauterize, and stigmatize all the whole kennel of curs that dare maliciously snarl against manifest, apparent, and well-known truths. In the mean space, you that are my debtors, if you please to pay me, you shall there in yourselves, out of a bad number amongst you which are yet placed, if you will not pay me, take this bone to gnaw upon, that I do hope you be ever furnished with money, then you shall be with honesty. Wow. So, some shade. <clears throat> also, <throat> terribly spelled. <laughs> <laughs> Is it just like old English? Oh yeah, just... very old. From before the standardization of spelling. Back when, uh, you know, vowels were more of a pick and mix um, hmm. than a strict prescription. So John Taylor, he wasn't an excellent writer, but he was a keen observer, and he wrote about the world around him, and prolifically so. For, for that reason, a lot of his work still survives, and you can find him quoted in a large number of books by social historians. I discovered John Taylor in the book Shakespeare's Pub by Pete Brown. And uh, I liked this character too much not to talk about him on our show. Mm. That's the story of John Taylor, the water poet. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. If you were a water poet, what book would you write? Now, are we to assume that he did, in fact, do all the things he said, or are we just going all out <coughs> okay. for a Middle English adventure? So you have to do the things that you write about. You know? uh, but it can be in, you know, if you, uh, if you had been John Taylor. I kind of wish that one of John Taylor's books had just been keen observations of all the poop that floated by. <laughs> <laughs> one was round and brown. The next was yellow and craggy. One was mostly corn. The poop won't fight you if you stare at it. <laughs> <laughs> you got to show dominance for the poop. Um, I think I would probably write a memoir about storming Cadiz, Cadiz, Cadiz. in Spain, mm-hmm. right? Cadiz. That sounds very interesting. Yeah. yeah. I kind of want to read that now. Yeah, I would, I would read that book. Mm-hmm. How I fought in Spain using only a cane covered in fish. <laughs> <laughs> this being the truthful account of John Taylor, the water poet, who didst kill five men using only a dried fish, and that not being even the worst of it, he also was imprisoned for many days. And that's the whole title. <laughs> also 90% of the book. Uh, I would write, um, I, I would write about trying to, uh, become a coachman after being a, a ferryman, 
and the hilarious misunderstandings that would <laughs> result. <laughs> Stopping in the middle of the road to be like, okay, if you want to keep going, <laughs> you gotta... Fishing for rats in the alleyway. You know I can just, like, get out of the coach, right? The door's right here. No. I'm, Damn. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it right now. Like, watch. No. They'll drown. You'll, you'll land drown. Step, step. My God. <laughs> so for the guilt of the boatmen, were they, or no, ferrymen? Watermen? The Watermen's The Watermen's Guild. So did they do like a, a dues system? Or like everyone pools all their fares at the end? Oh, do yeah. you get a yeah, percentage? How guilds generally work. Mm-hmm. Probably there was some membership fee. Uh, but, you know, you also had to go through their apprenticeship to get yeah. to become a ferryman in the first place. And if you didn't do that, they probably, you know, murked you. Yeah. Um, I imagine it was something like that. And then by paying your dues, you helped ensure that no bridge would be built to put you out of business. Actually, there was an interesting thing that um, a lot of people from London, on the opposite uh, side of the river from London, there were a ton of pubs and alehouses eventually. And a lot of people didn't want to be seen, like, going to them on the bridge. So they would hire private uh, ferries to get take them there, like, across the river, because they would, like, just have steps going down to the river. Um, so a lot of watermen learned a lot of secrets about, like, bishops and stuff, and apparently got a lot of blackmail about them that way. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. <clears throat> now, that would have been a good-ass book, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How I, John Taylor, didst blackmail a bishop, <laughs> using the perfidious and insidious knowledge that he didst love to drink and party. Or how I extorted him for money because of secrets. Herein contained a list of whorehouses popular amongst the clergy. Or a traveler's joy. (laughs) By John Taylor. An enumeration of how much the Bishop of Canterbury can drink before becoming himself sick upon the river. The Bishop of Canterbury had to best have my money. (laughs) All one title. (laughs) Beautiful. Just a whole lot of semicolons. (laughs) Well, my story is the Diamond Necklace Affair. It was this huge scandal that rocked uh, late Ancien Regime France right before the French Revolution. And uh, it, in a lot of ways, was incredibly emblematic of the order that existed before the Revolution. And the way that it went down is probably a contributing factor to why Marie Antoinette lost her head. It's the point where she was never very popular. Oh, was it because the diamond necklace was holding her head on? Like in that children's, <laughs> children's story. Book. Oh yeah, with the with the black ribbon. Yeah, I know the You will be beheaded. They take the necklace off the head. Roll. Damn it! <laughs> well, this was really anticlimactic. Or was the diamond necklace protecting her neck, like with very thick diamonds, oh. as a sort of shield? the blade could not pierce the <laughs> I diamond. Mean, I've looked at this necklace. It probably couldn't. Mm. This thing is ridiculous. See, it was commissioned by Louis the Fifteenth, Louis the Sixteenth's grandfather and predecessor for his uh, mistress, uh, the Madame de Barry. And he commissioned this from a uh, known jeweler, Charles Auguste Bomer. And it was worth about 2 million livres, or roughly $14 million in 2015 currency. And yeah, exactly. That's a waste of money. It's very emblematic of the Ancien Regime. (laughs) 
Like, there's a reason that the French finances were in the toilet by the time Louis even came to power and then made things worse. they kept putting more diamonds on the toilets. It, that's, like, very true. Jimmy? You should see some of the old toilets in Versailles. Finish your diamonds, Jimmy. Really? I don't want to. They cut like, up my colon. Engraved, <laughs> painted chamber pots made out of, like, super nice porcelain and, like, inlaid and painted with gold and shit. Just in every room. Just because. Because Louis the Fourteenth felt he had, felt he deserved it, and Louis the Fifteenth felt he had something to prove. Do we do we eat these diamonds? No, they cut up my colon and make it more of a semicolon, like the works of John Taylor. Jimmy, he's not even. He, Jimmy, how do you even know about John Taylor? Jimmy, you're French. You don't speak English. Been dead for a hundred and fifty years at this point. Mm-hmm. I liked his book about the fish horse. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna revolt. And that's how the French Revolution started. I always, I always wondered, now I know. <laughs> it was it was extremely emblematic of the kind of like extravagantly wasteful spending that the Court of Versailles was known for. Ooh. Quick question. Quick answer. What would people extravagantly adorn their houses with? And it can be modern too, but how would you have done it? If I needed to spend fourteen million dollars real mm-hmm. fast in or, my house, yeah, just any amount to like redecorate. I would gild a live peacock. Oh, it seems really that's mean. Cruel. Look, I'm just saying, if it's I needed just... to spend a lot of money, I would, ma- I would, I would waste it all on creating a live peacock covered in gold. Would the peacock have to still be alive after the gold coating? Yeah, no, there's no point in having a dead peacock lying around covered in gold. Anyone can do that. I'm talking like a peacock gold cyborg. That would cost a lot of money. Six million dollar peacock. <laughs> <laughs> we can rebuild him. We can make him fancier. It's just like the dance tail uh, fans. I was like... And then he stops bullets with it. Yeah, Just goes around preventing bird crime. Bird crime. Seed theft. I think I'd just buy a lot of really fancy carpets. Because carpets can be expensive. And I'll just get a lot of them. Enough that you're like, you didn't need this. Enough that, like, your walls are comfortable. That doesn't seem right. I would build an actual glass house. And then break it? Yes. Nice. Just, that's where most of the money goes, is you have an on-call glazier at all times. Mm-hmm. Glass house, and then you have tons of amazing stone-throwing parties. <laughs> you just constantly break it, and they have to build it again. The thing is, once the stone-throwing party gets en- enough underway, you can totally tell where the glass is because of all the blood. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this necklace gets commissioned in uh, 1772. But because of the staggeringly huge amount of diamonds on it. It takes, like, years and years to even source the diamonds, let alone cut them and make them. And during that time, Louis XV, never healthy, dies of smallpox. And understandably, uh, Madame de Barry is politely asked to leave Versailles. You think, you'd think a king could afford large pox? Fooey, fooey, I said you'd think a king could afford large pox. Max, it was a disease that tragically killed millions of people. Large pox, because smallpox, because it's, it's yeah, random. No, no, Max, have, have, have some dignity. Fooey, he's saying if he's a king, he should be able to get 
larger pox than all the other peasants in their small pox? It's a good question. I I have no response to that. Was it because he was already broke? Was I, did, if they <laughs> didn't find the diamonds, were they just going to put large pox on the necklace instead? Uh, oh Jesus! I feel like you would notice that very quickly. It'd be so gooey. These aren't diamonds. These are open, festering sores. You do care. <laughs> he went to the plague ward. De Beers. Open, festering sores. <laughs> Say you love her with large pox. Every kiss begins with large pox. Uh... So you were saying before we got off this horrifying <laughs> tangent. Oh, yeah, as I was saying, uh, she got booted out, but I guess nobody really told Charles Augusta Bomer because he just keeps making the necklace. And then he, finally he was like... Was he paid already? No. Oh, not even no! a little bit. No. The king's gonna be so happy with me. <laughs> so eventually he shows up at court with this necklace... And he tries to sell it to the court, being like, well, I mean, I already made it for your granddad. It's, it's here already. You've got a pretty young wife. I bet she likes shiny stuff. And according to, according to some accounts, in 1778, when he went to present the necklace, uh, Louis XVI offered to give it to Marie. And depending on whether or not you like Marie, she either said, no, you should spend that ridiculous amount of money on another ship for the American War, or if you don't like her... She said she didn't want to wear a jewel that had been made for another woman. Guess which one got more play in the Paris broadsheets? Um, guess the second one. War. <laughs> so. War. With that in the background, on to the main event. The actual scandal. And it starts with this young woman named uh, Jean Valois Saint-Rémy de Lamont. And her husband, Nicolas de Lamont. Uh, her maiden name was Jean Valois Saint Remy, and or Saint Remy, and her married name was Delamont. Her husband was Nicolas Delamont, who claimed to be a Comte, but there's no actual proof that he was noble at all. He was really more like a Brie. Is that a cheese joke? Yeah, yeah, Comte is kind of cheese. It's okay. a good question. <laughs> <laughs> And he was an officer in the gendarmes, an old kind of heavy cavalry that were very prestigious, but didn't really see much fighting at this point, because they still used lances. Lances, as we know, are the garbage weapon. Is that a cheese joke? No. That one got away from me. (laughs) I had something... And then I didn't. The Max Kreisky story. Semicolon, semicolon. <laughs> Guys, I'm so sorry. I forget what the point of that sentence that Fou was saying was. For the gendarmes. Oh, yeah, so there's the gendarmes. He was an officer in the gendarmes. Gendarmes. Which was part of how he and his wife were able to get access to the court at Versailles. Because mm-hmm. being an officer of the gendarmes was very uh, prestigious. Nice. Their uh, marriage was never particularly happy. Apparently it was kind of a shotgun wedding, and by all accounts she was already heavily pregnant by the time of their marriage. You mean a musket wedding? 
I mean, they still had... Blunderbuss wedding? You mean a there lance we wedding? The sharp end of a giant necklace <laughs> You mean a guillotine wedding? Guillotine we wedding, kind of get. halfway across this river and we've stopped kind of wedding? <laughs> you mean a uh, salt fish tied to an oar wedding? How is that meant to be threatening? Find out. In- <laughs> Find out in John Taylor's... How to liberate a man from his mummy and liberty at a wedding with a salted fish or semicolon without purchasing or <laughs> trading or asking for meat. <laughs> semicolon a jape. <laughs> semicolon it being a commentary upon the blissful state of matrimony. Semicolon and the state of God. Anyway, she's very pregnant, and they got married. Yeah, they had twins, and I guess this is the bummer part, is that neither of them lived very long, because this was the late 18th century, and that's just the way things go. Rip small children. No, I don't want to rip small children. (laughs) Yeah, I had a second of being like, what? Oh, now I understand. After this point, they try and um, inveigle their way into the court. She claims that uh, she's the descendant of an illegitimate son of Henry II, the first of the Valois kings. Ooh, the Valois kings. They were the dynasty that preceded the Bourbons. Ooh, Bourbon. Yes, the, the royal family of France. No, I know. I'm being the Bourbon? Yeah, I know. I'm really more of a... I'm, I'm trying to make really, more, really more of a gin guy. Are you done? Oh, I, I'm just getting started <laughs> I regret all of my life's choices. Uh, so they came to the court at Versailles, and uh, she tried to use her claimed uh, connection to an old royal house to get a stipend from the uh, royal family, which happened actually a fair amount. There were a lot of nobles who were either descended from illegitimate royalty or who had lost their land for one reason or another who lived on the largesse of the, no- of the royal family. This being a time when they still thought that was a good idea. Which, in a couple of years, they will rapidly rethink. So, that doesn't really work out. She meets the queen, like, once. The queen instantly dislikes her. And she ends up just kind of out on her ass and starts taking up with a string of lovers. And two of them are important to this story. One of them is a man called uh, De Valette, who was another officer in the gendarmes. And the really important one is the Cardinal de Rohan. Full name, Cardinal Louis-René Edouard de Rohan. And he was a younger son of the de Rohan family who had become a cardinal like his uncle. Or rather, he had joined the church like his uncle and then rapidly became a cardinal because this is Ancien Regime France. And if you're a noble, you can very rapidly rise in the church. And you don't really have to do much. The Bishop Talleyrand, who is a fascinating character, if I ever come back here, I will definitely do a piece on Talleyrand, because he's one of my favorites. But he was Bishop of Utan officially, and he never once set foot in Utan. Yes. <laughs> Typical the nepotism of the church. He was always at Sheppy Kent, probably. <laughs> <laughs> with the puppies. Letting him lick his face and tell he was working from home, but he wasn't. <laughs> he wasn't. He was just preaching to dogs. That'd be really cute, just a bunch of dogs sitting really still in pews while this guy's like, ah, right. And now we will read from the book of Matthew and rise to sing the hymn. Rub, 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 rub. Now we will sing from the book of St. Bernard. Who was a good boy. <laughs> so... 
Cardinal de Rohan, he starts shacking up with Jean. And uh, important things to know about him, he had started his official capacity as a minister of the state by being appointed an ecclesial ambassador to the imperial court in Vienna of the Holy Roman Emperors. And there he, for reasons that are not entirely clear to me, uh, Maria Theresa, the empress and mother of Marie Antoinette, immediately did not like him. And he was recalled pretty shortly afterwards and was just generally very unpopular, never really held another minister position again. Probably got dog hair all over the throne. A common problem, yes. Plaguing the courts of Europe throughout history. You know what they say, in for a penny, in for a pound. Of dog hair. I was making a, like, dog pound joke, but yeah, sure. Oh, I see it now. So, he is eventually recalled from the Viennese court, but he wants to maintain power and try and get another seat in the government. So he starts trying to suck up to Marie Antoinette. And Marie Antoinette is already predisposed not to like him because her mother didn't like him and because he's a French priest. So he tries to do it. She never really takes on to it. But Jean sees an opportunity here. She has been a con woman for a very long time. And so she talks to her other lover, De Valette, And he, it turns out, is a master forger. And so they come up with this complicated plot where they start writing letters. Uh, they, like, s- borrow some of Marie Antoinette's letters so that De Valette can learn to copy her handwriting and signature. And then they start sending fake letters back and forth between Rohan and Marie Antoinette. He's using air quotes here. I feel like that was fairly clear from the pronunciation. I'm, I'm helping the audience paint a word picture in their minds. Because, you know, we Bowie did... sitting here, stark naked, <laughs> on one side of the table, the three of us cowered on the other end. Don't tell people my podcast rituals! Painted blue and wearing a smurf hat. Look, I have to get in character. But it's weird because there's a, just a giant smurf face painted on his stomach. So we're asking ourselves, is Fooey the Smurf, or is his tummy the Smurf? And he won't say. That would ruin the air of ineffable mystery that is the cornerstone of my charm. Would it, Fooey? I'm sorry. Sorry, let me address that. Would it, Tummy Smurf? (laughs) Yes, it would. (laughs) Alright, he pushed his belly together and made little lips and made it say that. So they start sending these letters back and forth. And the tone of the letters is very warm, and very rapidly, Cardinal de Rohan, who I am convinced was not a particularly bright man, starts to think that uh, the queen digs him, and he kind of becomes infatuated with her in return. And meanwhile, Charles Augustus Bomer makes his like yearly appearance, being like, Hey, anybody want this necklace? Necklace, come on, somebody please take this necklace. And they hatch this idea. Please, I've been eating these diamonds. <laughs> My children can't eat silver anymore. They've all turned blue from the silver in their bloodstream. No. I've invented a colorful cartoon character based on them, but it's not selling. <laughs> the world's not ready for it. Someday, though. Someday. Now, please. Please, I've dyed my cap red with my own blood to get your attention. As the father, this is what I must wear now. My beard's gone pure white. 
<laughs> and then there's just this one like advisor to the king and queen on the side being like, "Yeah, I'll get that. I'll get his blue children and make turn their blood into magic." <laughs> Or whatever the hell it is that Gargamel wanted to do. He alternates between wanting to turn the Smurfs into gold and wanting to eat them. Yeah, his motivations are never particularly clear. Go straight up Gargamel. You never go straight Gargamel. It's just a bad scene all around. I think it starts off wanting to make them into gold, but then spends so much money... On uh, trying to capture them, that he just can't afford food anymore. So he's like, "I'll eat them. I'll eat them to survive. Then I can finally be free." It's a tragic psychodrama. The portrait of a man devoured by his own obsessions. You know the really sad part? Smurfs aren't real. Not even in the metafiction. <laughs> it was all in his head. <laughs> He hallucinates from all the mercury fumes from his alchemy. He's not even an alchemist. He's a, he made hats. <laughs> he thinks he's an alchemist. It's what he's told himself is why he has all this mercury lying around. It's very sad. It's all in my book, The Truth About the Smurfs, semicolon, Gargamel's Lament, semicolon, A Speculation Upon the Truth Behind the Smurfs. So he shows up at the court. Yeah. <laughs> so he keeps trying to sell this necklace. And uh, Jean and Villette and her husband, Nicolas de Lamont, they come up with this plan. So they write a letter to Rohan asking him to buy the necklace on Marie Antoinette's behalf. Because she wants it, but she feels like she can't, you know, just go ahead and buy it. Because, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. It wouldn't look great if I were to spend, you know, the price of a small army on this necklace. And so he thinks, awesome, I'll do it. And then I'll definitely be reimbursed for this from the crown. Because we definitely have all that money. Nobody's getting screwed on this deal. Jacques Necker is not a huge con man. That's sarcasm, isn't it? It is. I'll talk about the Comtron do in a minute if you want me to. Sure. Which is another big factor that explains why this blew up so badly. Please. I will say we're at 50 minutes, though. Oh, rough. Uh, <laughs> so they keep passing these letters back and forth. They He gets suspicious at one point, because as warm as these letters are, whenever he sees Marie Antoinette, she doesn't really ever respond to him, so he gets kind of curious <laughs> about this. And asks to meet her. And so, Valette and Delamont, they go and they find a prostitute who looks like Marie Antoinette and steal some old dresses and dress her up like the queen and have her meet Rohan in the gardens late at night. And he comes away convinced that he's met her and that everything is a-okay and he's like, fuck yeah, I'm a buyer of these huge diamonds, it's gonna be great. Full Prince and the Pauper. I love it. How was this not made into a movie Full yet? Oh or how did I not hear about it? What if it's that pauper prostitute that got killed instead of Marie Antoinette and she lived out the rest of her days? That would make it even more tragic. Yeah. Um, right? Yeah, that's... No, now I'm depressed. Thanks a lot. No. <laughs> Bad people never lose. <laughs> <laughs>
they buy this necklace, and immediately the husband, Nicholas Delamont, he takes the necklace and bolts for London, where he starts stripping it down and selling the diamonds individually. Mm-hmm. That seems like a much better idea than trying to sell it as one giant yep. necklace. Way better. But why didn't the necklace guy do that? Because he's an artist. He's not going to destroy the thing that he just spent years making. I mean, he'd probably take a loss on the diamonds alone. Oh, yeah. You would take a huge loss on that. Like, a significant part of the cost there is the labor mm-hmm. of moving the diamonds and then having people cut them and shape them into this huge and elaborate necklace. So they start stripping it down and selling it off, and meanwhile, Valette and Jean start doing the brush off. So the bill comes due, and it turns out that uh, the notes that uh, De Rohan gave Bomer weren't enough. And so he goes to the court, and is like, hey, I gave you guys this necklace, where's all my money? And they're like, we didn't order it. That, that necklace. We told you like 6,000 times we don't want the necklace. I pulled the old pizza party ruse. No, you, you definitely bought the necklace. I no, don't sir. Have it we didn't order any pizza here. <laughs> I don't. What, what, what pizza? Is that an Italian thing? I don't stand for that kind of papist degeneracy. Uh, go, go on. <clears throat> and it all just starts to blow up. They find Erohan, and he shows them the letters. And this is. Kind of the funny thing, well, not really funny, but it's an interesting thing that all of the histories mention, is that he really should have seen this coming, because all of the letters were signed Marie-Antoinette de France, when, as an old-blood noble and a cardinal, he should have known that royalty never uses their last name. They would always just sign it Louis, or Marie-Antoinette, or Francis. Never Habsburg, or de France, or Windsor, or whatever. Okay, so de France is a last name? I thought it was just like, Marie... From France. <laughs> well, because she's the queen, she can call herself de France. Of France. She is France. Oh, oh so de France really means... All, France. like, nobility titles, they're always like the Marquis de Lafayette. And he's referred to as Lafayette. Because oh. he is the area of Lafayette. I see. In a person. Oh, that's so cool. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's an old conceit of addressing aristocracy. Like, you still see it used in... England, where you will see people who refer to themselves as simply like, oh yes, that, that's Marlborough, because he's the Duke of Marlborough. You just call him Marlborough. Mm. I think he knew deep down, but he just wanted... He, he may have, like I said, I don't so think bad. he was very bright. I think he was kind of like a dreamy romantic who got taken yep. for a ride. Yup. So he gets clapped in the Bastille for a while. Oh, oh this poor dude. <laughs> he gets <laughs> thrown in the Bastille. And they rapidly catch Villette and Jean, and the prostitute. What was her name? I wrote it down here. What? Nicole Leguay was the name of the prostitute. So they find all of them. Nicolas de Lamont is still in London. He never comes back. He's in the wind. He's done. He sees all this, and he's like, hey, well, look who's coming out ahead with a big sack of diamonds. Look who's walking down the second bridge. I'm going to go check out this new bridge that I just heard about. Look who's got plenty of diamonds to eat. (laughs) I'll never starve again, crunch gnaw spit. Shines one on his shirt. And he went across France planting diamonds. And that's why we call him Johnny Diamond Seed. Fun fact, that's how uh, Joe Biden made his fortune. I, 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 we know. Everyone knows about how Joe Biden planted diamond trees. Yeah. 
<clears throat> so there's this huge trial. It's like, you know how every couple of years there's the new trial of the century? Yeah. This was the trial of the century and was the most publicized trial up until the trial of Louis Sixteenth in January of 1793. Like, that is literally what it took to supplant the popular imagination around this trial. It was a huge deal. The press had a field day with this. Nobody liked Marie Antoinette to begin with. The French and the Austrians have been fighting for decades. And, in fact, the last time they fought was the Seven Years' War, where France got its ass handed to it and lost all of its continental... Uh, lost all of its uh, North American continental holdings. And so, consequently, nobody liked the Austrians. Marie Antoinette was never popular. Everybody saw her as an Austrian interloper who was going to poison the king's ear against his people and sell us all out to the emperors in Vienna. And this just reaffirmed everything. Like, when Jean and Villette went on the stand, they were very charismatic and very sympathetic. At the end of the trial, like, the prostitute was just this innocent young woman who was driven by poor circumstances to make bad choices, and Jean was a noble who had been spurned by the court and had to make her own way. And Rohan was just this lovable, hapless dupe. And throughout the whole thing, despite the fact that she had no connection to any wrongdoing whatsoever, everybody was convinced that Marie Antoinette was this manipulative harpy who was prepared to just destroy this nice old man in exchange for a shiny thing. A court of popular opinion. And she lost the case badly. Her reputation never recovered. And that's really when you start seeing all of the very famous, like, lurid, nylon pornographic depictions of her life at Versailles. And it... Let them eat diamonds! <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna keep going back to this well. <laughs> Just hammer on that button. <laughs> and of course, it looks even worse in retrospect a couple years later when the French economic policy really starts to fall apart. Because at this point, the current finance minister is this Swiss guy, a Protestant named uh, Jacques Necker, who is like a banking genius. Like Hamilton before there was Hamilton. He just reinvented banking systems wherever he went. And just in the popular imagination, he could do no wrong. So Ah, back when bankers captured the public imagination. He got a hold of the books when he became the finance minister... And what he should have seen should have scared him, but he just kind of viewed it as a challenge, and he wrote this huge report called the Comte Rendu that was supposed to be a complete in annex and, uh, or not annex, uh, analysis of the French finances. And if you looked at it, it said everything's going swimmingly. Revenues are nicely exceeding expenditures. Nobody's getting screwed on this deal. Everything's fine. It's all fine. Keep lending us money. Everything's fine. But... It didn't actually total up all of the expenditures, because in the CARES view of the world, there were two kinds of expenditure. There was ordinary expenditures, upkeep of the basic army, Versailles, paying everybody from the government shitty, all of the largess and grain doles and whatnot. And then there were extraordinary expenses, like, say, the American War. And guess what didn't make it onto the Comte Rendu? Oh, um, uh, Diamond Breakfast. No, Diamond Breakfast was actually accounted for in the Comte Rendu. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's right there on uh, page 497, uh, uh, clause 3. Frequent uh, frequent visits to the Isle of Shepikens. (laughs) Actually, also included. Okay. Uh, Gilding a peacock. That was not. 
Okay. That one was a private obsession <laughs> of the Duke d'Orléans that I went terribly wrong. Duke Peacock <laughs> lived alone in his tower of gold peacocks. <laughs> every every month he'd get a new peacock thinking, this is the one that'll live. They called him mad because he was indisputably in all senses of the word. They called him mad. They were correct. They said he was haunted till his dying day by the ghosts of all the peacocks he murdered. So what was was the American War? The, like, 40 million livres spent on the American War were not accounted for in the Comte Rondu. I mean, that makes sense. And so eventually, Necker gets booted from the ministry. And again, this was very unpopular. He was hugely popular with the people. He was called the people's banker. There were a lot of people who learned how to read because of the Comte Rondu. Because it was published and distributed everywhere. So anybody could grab a copy. And just people would literally flip through it and learn how to read that way. That sounds like the most boring way to learn how to read. <laughs> From reading I mean, the, like, tax and finances of your of your country. Probably not at all. So Why did boring. I even learn how to read? <laughs> this is all reading is just numbers and letters and adding up expenses and talking about gilded peacocks. Blah. Readings for chumps. Give Maybe. me a good story about poop floating down the <laughs> Maybe he set up. Want to read the one about the guy with the fish oars again? Maybe he set it up as a bunch of like lovable children's books, like a series. <laughs> and the turtle. Sally learns about accounts deductible. Ronnie Raccoon goes to war with America. <laughs> <laughs> Ronnie Raccoon and the Diamond Breakfast. <laughs> See spot run, an economically efficient administration. <laughs> Ronnie Raccoon kills the Protestants. <laughs> Je- uh, Ronnie Raccoon and the no good, very bad British. <laughs> so eventually, Give a mouse a cookie and it'll last for diamonds. <laughs> so eventually, Necker gets booted because he is a Protestant, and surprise, Marie Antoinette doesn't like him. So he eventually gets booted, and then his successor is this guy who I won't even bother you with the name of because he's lasts like six months before quitting. Because he tries, he's like, no, we have to increase taxes. Like, seriously, guys, this is a big deal. We, we gotta do this. And they're like, haha, no, you're fired. And his successor was this guy named Cologne. And Cologne also realized that they had to raise taxes, but didn't want to because it was politically impossible. Oh, well, we should have just sold the diamond so poop baskets. Decided on that brings it back to the diamond necklace affair, and is the reason this isn't just a long tangent. I was wondering. Is a process that he called useful splendor, where instead of cutting back, they would just continue to spend extravagantly at Versailles, throwing huge balls and buying fancy new dresses and making feasts of golden peacocks. (laughs) To show everybody, it's fine, everything's fine. Why would the royal family be spending hundreds of thousands of livres every couple of weeks on these extravagant balls if we didn't have just tons of money in the bank? Keep lending us money, please God, just keep lending us money. But eventually, that also runs out, and he has to make a public statement that, yeah, we can keep the lights on at Versailles through the end of the week, and then after that, we're broke. And then everybody points out, like, well, then why were you spending all of that money? Hey, remember when Marie Antoinette manipulated that poor old cardinal into buying her that huge necklace under the table? (laughs) Splash! (laughs) 
That's him jumping into the moat. Now, now, now he's going away. Splash, 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 splash. Now he's... <laughs> None of these bargemen will say I have enough money to get on the other side. None of them can make change for a huge diamond necklace. <laughs> and things kind of spiraled downwards from there. And that's the story of how a diamond necklace probably cost Marie Antoinette her head. I mean... Boy, uh, I thought a diamond necklace like that would only cost an arm and a leg. Oh, and he's hung himself. <laughs> he caught himself by surprise. <laughs> Never even saw it coming. I do it for the smile on Jackie's face. <laughs> She smiles so wide when she, she thinks I've killed myself. Tears into my cold, glassy eyes. <laughs> Sings a little lullaby. Uh, amazing. I'd probably gild your bones. Ooh. Sweet gold boyfriend bones. Wait, now that's a wait, conversation whoa, whoa, whoa. piece. No, wait. What was a conversation piece? What did you say yesterday you were going to do to my bones after I died? This is a fascinating look into their domestic life. I said I was going to turn them into dice, and I don't know why you found this oh, appalling. Yeah, she was going to turn my bones into dice and dominoes. The dice and dominoes set. So she could always have fun with you. Yeah, that, well, that actually sounds really sweet. I couldn't remember which one when people are like, oh, I'm playing the bones or whatever. It's dice. It's dice. I couldn't remember if it's dice or dominoes, so I figured I'd split the difference and do it. And both. make both. Dicemos. Por que los nos dos? They're both white with dots. That's true. Just just like Noel. <laughs> <laughs> Let the record show Noel is covered in dots. I don't know how many of you have actually seen a picture of him. I'm very sick. <laughs> He's got small pox. Yeah. Oh, I thought he was those class <laughs> I thought he just kept getting into the permanent markers. <laughs> Max, remember that other night when we kissed? Yeah. You've got it, too. Aw. I thought I was rich enough to have large box. Share the wealth. So my story is about a man named James Smithson. He was the founding donor for the Smithsonian Institution. Oh. And you would say, that's awesome. Everyone loves the Smithsonian Institution. What? I do love the Smithsonian Institute. What? Nothing infallible can be associated with this at all. I'm certain no bad, wrong thing can happen. There's no foreshadowing at all. No, this is just going to be a great tale of just everything going super well for everybody. I can't wait to enjoy this lovable romp. Take us down this journey of good times and rainbows. Well, you guys cut off my segue and, <laughs> took, it, <laughs> and took it in a different direction. <laughs> But I was going to say, wouldn't you think he probably has some delightful ties to America or anything related to the Smithsonian Institution? And the answer would be no. He never met a single American, never went to America. No one knew why he gave this money to the United (laughs) States. So he was not a known philanthropist. No, he um, he was the illegitimate son of a of a duke um, from England, and he since he was an illegitimate son, he couldn't join the military or the church, which was like the usual path. 
Um, so instead, he decided to become a scientist. And he was a geologist and a chemist. Um, and the description I saw of him was that he was dutiful, but not spectacular or something like that. Like, he was, he was, he was doing stuff during exciting times, but he wasn't like, he wasn't a big name or anything like that. Just your average illegitimate child. Yeah, making Just his way. Pumping around in the sciences rather than the military or the church. <laughs> like some kind of chump. <laughs> um, yeah. So he never married, never had any children. Um, and in his will, he left his small fortune, which he made from inheriting land, and then he sold the land and made smart investments or something like that. And it was enough to um, leave him with a fortune of about $500,000. Um, and he had a really big gambling problem, so it must have been worth a lot more if it could also have oh, let yeah. him have his gambling problem. he could have gambled problem. most of it away, yeah. Yeah. So in his will... Probably bought a lot of bookies, a lot of good baby shoes. <laughs> That's so, so weird. <laughs> <laughs> you never heard dad, daddy needs a new pair of shoes? Or baby needs a new pair of shoes? Okay, I well... I don't think so. It's a saying a gamblers say. Anyway. Yeah, but... But I they're referring was... to themselves as baby, right? Yeah, Can they don't... say that? Go, daddy needs a new pair of baby shoes. <laughs> But why, then why do they call uh, call bookies old, the old baby shoes? Maybe they're just very paternally responsible gamblers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe they're gambling their baby's shoes away. Or like when they put their baby on the table to bet it and they push it in, that single shoe like, like is still behind. And they're like, oh, I lost the baby, but I could probably put this shoe in a slot machine. I raise you baby shoes never worn. <laughs> So in his will, he um, he gave his estate to his nephew, um, but he had a little clause in there that said, "If my nephew doesn't have any children, or if he fails to spend the night in my haunted mansion, <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to will my estate to the United States so that at Washington, an establishment for the increase and diffusion of knowledge for man can can be made." And that was all his instructions. They were not specific. At all. It just said an institution in Washington for for increase and diffusion of knowledge. When was this? Um, he died in 1829. Hmm. Um, I imagine him in his home just being like after some letters like mad science with his fingers crossed. Please be mad science. <laughs> As he yeah. gazes at the Tower of Peacock down the street. <laughs> I can't specify it in my will because they won't take it if I say mad science, but I hope they understand looking at my life and work and where I've chosen to live. He said eating a big old bowl of diamonds. (laughs) Uh. Uh, So the person in charge of the nephew's estate contacts the United States and is like, I got some money for you. The United States says we're really suspicious about this. <laughs> so, Congress debates among itself for the next eight years if they should accept this money or not. Man, a time back when America wouldn't take free money <laughs> from an anonymous donor being told to do something with it. 
Well, it wasn't anonymous because he did specify that it should be called the Smithsonian Institution. So they were basically saying that... um, Oh, there was a delightful quote. I wrote it down. I'll see if I can find it. But it... Oh, okay. Um, They thought that it would be a bad precedent to accept money from a foreigner. Um, And one of the senators was quoted as saying... Every whippersnapper vagabond would send a gift to the United States in order to immortalize his own name. And that's a bad thing. (laughs) Why, if we go around naming things after people who give us extravagant amounts of money, then what do you think? Next thing you know, we won't be calling this Congress, we'll be calling it Dave. (laughs) Dave's household laws. (laughs) (laughs) It won't be Mount Rushmore. No, it'll be Mount... Dave. I mean, Mount Rushmore was already named for a guy named Rushmore. All these Daves <laughs> giving it, us it money. It has a different name in the Dakota tongue. And once everything's named Dave, <laughs> why won't we ever find a damn thing? Supreme Court will be renamed Dave's House of Justice. We'll have to rewrite legal our... precedent. Tuppence a pound. We'll have to rewrite the. Uh, we'll have to rewrite our national anthem to say "From Dave to Shining Dave." <laughs> <laughs> The Civil War, the fight against Northern Dave. <laughs> the War of Dave Aggression. Oh my goodness. Dave Construction. It doesn't make a lick of sense. <laughs> Federal Dave, State Dave, I don't know which one are more important. We, John, the people of these wait, United wait, wait. Daves, in order to establish a more harmonious Dave. <laughs> in among these nonsense Daves, <laughs> <laughs> Something that I was going to use as a transition back to the story. Amongst this cacophony of Daves. <laughs> so, Noel said something along the lines of, lines of state Daves versus federal Daves. <laughs> and I forget what the Daves were supposed to mean at that point. <laughs> I'm going to say they mean rights. Yes. <laughs> what did it? Yes. Okay, and that was also why the, why the government was like, I don't know if we want to accept this money, because the instructions were for the United States to make an institution in Washington, which would mean that this would have been a federal institution. And they thought that having any sort of federal institution that promoted knowledge would be like having a a federally controlled education system, which they thought might encroach on states' rights to have their own um, education systems. Good thing we've put petty squabbles (laughs) like that behind us. Yeah, right? Oofa doofa. (laughs) Spicy discourse. (laughs) Um, yeah, so they thought that education might be seen as an expansion of federal power. Um, and that was the concern of John C. Calhoun from South Carolina. <laughs> Which his- Fucking John C. Calhoun. <laughs> no, seriously, he's such a douchebag. What's some other stuff John C. Calhoun has done? Um, he was very famous for giving a speech on the slavery subject where he claimed that um, the Negro is a child, and his only hope of uh, advancement in this world is submission to the noble white man. Oh. And that slavery is not just a necessary evil, but a manifest good. Mm. Right. I'm going to say, though, I am going to take those audio clips of you saying that. <laughs> oh, no. And I'm going to put them everywhere out of context. <laughs> Yeah, does that that be a standard response? Just like, drop the audio clip onto like people's like Facebook. This is my new voicemail. No, no. no. boy. Oh. Only there was a social media site that was full of just really politically ch- and emotionally charged posts. That you could one. just drop that off. That doesn't sound right. 
I am going to put it on your audio Tinder, though. <laughs> you see Jesus. The thing is, if audio Tinder existed, that would just be a drop among a bucket of festering shit. Uh. Well, at least you could dump that shit into the Thames. Full circle. Full circle. So, um, Congress finally gets it together and is like, okay, we'll accept this money. And then since the purpose of the money was so vague, was just an institution for the spread of knowledge, uh, they then promptly started to debate what they should actually use the money for. I say we should use it to look at cats under microscopes. <laughs> yeah, so some people... I think we should pay men to throw rocks at the moon. <laughs> gentlemen, gentlemen, these are all great ideas. <laughs> and we have enough money to do both. <laughs> I propose a system of transatlantic cables used to wire the information about fishes to one man to another. Can we do anything besides fishes? No. Oh. Fish only. Now back to my proposal for gilding peacocks. (laughs) Back to my proposal for making raincoats for ducks. (laughs) So yeah, they were... That so cute. That was adorable. (laughs) As adorable as it is redundant. (laughs) (laughs) That should be the the United States National Bird, a little tiny duck and his little rain snicker, little rain hats flashing around in a puddle. I say eagle with a knife. (laughs) Why not both? We have the money. (laughs) So yeah, an agricultural college was one of the options. (laughs) I propose a turkey dressed as a surgeon. Dr. Gobbles will be our national bird. Get out of here, Benjamin Franklin. Recently uncovered Thomas Jefferson's portrait of a dove with an axe. No explanation. All wearing a tiny little headdress. Okay, so... They debated where this money should go. Should it be a university? Should it be a library? Should it be an agricultural college and a national farm? Which sounded adorable to me, especially because one of the proposed parts of this national farm would be a piggery. Aww. Which sounded so cute. The Institute to Breed to the Institute to Breed a Fatter Pig. Semicolon. <laughs> a Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> So while they're debating what to do with this money, they actually have the money and they deposit it into a bank in Philadelphia. And because it's in Philadelphia, they decide that they're going to buy state bonds with this money instead. So they buy state bonds for Arkansas, which then promptly defaulted and they lost all of the money. Oh, oh they lost no. All of the- they lost all well, of the money. fucking Arkansas. <laughs> that just goes to show, never bet on Arkansas. Mm-hmm. So, in 1842, Congress was like, you know, that money was really earmarked for something. We should probably still do what that money was actually for. So, they appropriated funds and um, added 4% interest onto the amount of money that they were, that was earmarked for the Smithsonian Institution. So, then they had four more years of arguing. And then President John Quincy Adams um, convinced Congress that they should use the money to make an organization to advance science. 
which you might note is only slightly more specific. <laughs> Ever so slightly more specific. That's like the CEO coming in and being like, listen, you've been all debating this for a while. I know you are all trying to breed a fatter pig, but what if we breed a pig that's plumper? <laughs> <laughs> yep. <clears throat> So in 1846, they finally said, all right, we're going to make an organization that has a lecture hall, some publications, and a collection of the world's plants and seeds. And you might be thinking to yourself, that sounded... Awesome. It sounded awesome, definitive. Nothing like the Smithsonian Institution we have today. (laughs) And that is true, because it only became a museum accidentally. (laughs) There was a failed National Institute for the Promotion of Science that um, when it ran out of funding, it just dumped all of its collection at the patent office. And then when the patent... We science too much, and we, uh, well, can't afford these anymore. We got all this extra science, just leave it on the lawn, I guess. Just gonna dump out this cardboard box full of science. So then when the patent office heard that this other place was opening, they were like, we will gift you these things. And they basically just shoved a box of random stuff at the Smithsonian Institution. And thus began America's Attic, which is what I heard it was called yeah, in in the beautiful. Smithsonian uh, website. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so one of their first pieces was uh, Benjamin Franklin's cane, a two-headed snake from Maryland, a lemon. <laughs> <laughs> just a regular it, wow. lemon. Is it special lemon or is it just... It was from Liberia. come deposit ye tuppence in my oh, hat and yellow. view this yellow fruit. Look at this yellow orange. <laughs> Look at this fucked up orange. Doesn't have any red in it at all. I I wouldn't even feed this to an eagle with a knife. <laughs> and that's saying something. Um, yep. Yeah, so so the Smithsonian Institution begins with this beautiful collection, and for the next thirty years, the heads of the Smithsonian try to convince Congress they should separate the museum from the science publication and lecture part, and they are completely unsuccessful, and we still have the Smithsonian Institution Museum today. Huzzah! And every year they go back to Congress. (laughs) Every year they just get shot down. Yeah. The Smithsonian Institute, succeeding in spite of Congress for 180 years. (laughs) I like to think that, what were those things that were dropped off the... The Benjamin Franklin's cane, two-headed snake, and the lemons. That was all that this organization had. <laughs> so they just were like, this is not going anywhere, guys. We have no more funding. Just put the box down. We leave. swung and we missed. Let's just toss it on the lawn. Benjamin Franklin used to get super high and try and hit this lemon with this cane while talking to this two-headed snake. Nobody cares about that. And then he was bit by this snake. All anyone remembers Benjamin Franklin for is Dr. Gobble. PhD. <laughs> Which is why he was arrested for illegally practicing surgery. He was not even an MD. <laughs> it's a doctor in philosophy. Uh, Theology, specifically. That's, uh, that's a good story. Uh, so we've got just enough time for a very quick round of everyone's favorite segment on Anachronismo. What if they met? What if they met, if they met these people from history? 
They never met, but what if they met? What we can see, what we can see in history is, what if these two people from disparate times and places had met? What would they have done? We don't know, but we can speculate. If they had met, but they never met. But what if they met? What if they met? They never met. But what if they met? They met. They didn't meet. But what if they met? Now, I feel like you could time, fit yeah. more into this segment <laughs> if you didn't have that long introduction. <laughs> no, it always has to be that long. <laughs> Look, how, would, how will people know if they tune in halfway through that song that we're having the segment? You gotta have it long. So, I'll start us off. What would have happened if all of the cute little ducks in raincoats met all the dogs on Sheppy Kent? <laughs> uh, well, that's where the greeting card industry came from, Jackie. Someone went to Sheppy Kent and saw a bunch of ducks in raincoats playing with a bunch of sheepdogs, and they were like, well, here's my fortune. And thus, the porcelain tchotchke industry received its greatest boon since the invention of the rosy-cheeked child. And John Taylor wrote a book, but no one believed him. <laughs> Uh, uh, what if, um, what if John Taylor had met Marie Antoinette? Oh, he probably would have written something scathing when she refused to pay him. <laughs> <laughs> like, literally just a couple of pennies for his book, and he's just like, well, you know, yeah, that would be, that'd be amazing if that had turned the tide of, like, France against Marie Antoinette. She wouldn't even pay a nickel for this book. It's something about let me eat poop. I don't understand it. <laughs> An account of how Mary Antoinette did not pay me for a book and should be executed. Semicolon, a feast of diamonds. <laughs> <laughs> so you got any what if they mess for us? Hmm. What if Smithson met Congress? Wait. <laughs> He would get so angry at how they kept spending all of his money on different ways to dress birds. <laughs> He's just like, I don't know. It's like, uh, well, thank you for Wait, inviting me here. Wait, what if Smithson met Dr. Gobbles? So, <laughs> like, uh, thank you for inviting me here today um, for you, Congress. I've never been to America before. Lovely place. Lovely place. So you got a lot of peacocks. Running <laughs> <laughs> around here all getting into hijinks. Uh, just a huge number that. of birds. I didn't stress enough how confused the United States was about why this random guy gave them money. Like, they sent a lawyer over to investigate to see what sort of connections he had to the United States, and they found none. The closest thing they found was that he had books that accurately represented the United States. Well, that could mean anything. Those yeah. could be just two books of two men arguing and punching each other. It was very vague. Considering this is the Jacksonian era, that sums up American politics pretty well. It was a well-chosen metaphor. But it did say that, um, so this, why he picked the United States was like a big mystery question that two women did like an investigative story on. And one of the prevailing theories was that he um, thought the United States was a lot more egalitarian and he was spiteful to England because of their, um, their system of uh seniorial privilege mm -hmm. they and wouldn't so, even have primogeniture so, and all of that and yeah, so, so he might have because i'm a bastard well yeah. i'll show them who the real bastard is me i'm gonna impersonate a priest and make the royalty fall in love <laughs> so i'm saying he might have some kindred spirits with uh with uh nickel 
Nichols. Nicholson? And Nicolas no. de Lamont. Nicholas. But it was Jean, Jean de Lamont was yeah. the woman who was the... So I feel really like the brains behind the operation. They had similar problems, but they oh, went in different ways. I forgot to mention ways. that she's awesome. Um, when she was convicted in the court, and she became a folk hero for a hot minute afterwards, <laughs> because she was supposed to be whipped and branded and imprisoned, but she cut her hair off in her cell, dressed herself up as a boy, and escaped. And nobody ever found her again. That's awesome. Help, help. The woman who was in this cell tricked me with her feminine wiles. <laughs> she said if I got in here and let her out, then I would have, I don't know, sex? Which I hear is a kind of cake. And I'm starving to death because this is revolutionary era France. Anyway, can you let me out, sucker? <laughs> I'm coming, Dr. Gobbles. <laughs> Dr. Gobbles was the mastermind behind the whole thing. Yeah, I'm just imagining this scene of, like, this, the steel guard, like, he's ringing the bell and he runs out, like, to the battlement and he's overlooking and he just sees down below on this road, this little rowboat with the, uh, the Jean, <laughs> and, like, just, just turkey and, like, an oversized, like, doctor's coat just rowing a boat away. Rowing, uh, Ben Franklin's canes with two oh. fish on the end. <laughs> <laughs> The hardest thing for that turkey to do was not eat those fish. <laughs> or to actually grab the game. <laughs> That's a lot harder. They have no hands. That turkey's real name was Verbal Kint. What? Usual suspect ending. Uh, oh. Uh, yeah. None of us got it. Yeah, I know. I hope some of you listeners did. I hope you did too. Um, and I hope, I hope you did it just to make Max look like an idiot. Oh, well, Email us and let us know. Yes. <laughs> I, I hope you do, and I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Um, we'll be back in two weeks. Uh, you can uh, contact us at on Twitter at, at Anak Podcast. That's A-N-A-C Podcast on Twitter. Or you can email us at itsanachronismo at gmail.com. If you have any comments, concerns, cool stories you want to share, or like cool pictures of uh, turkeys dressed as doctors, whatever. Um, uh, we've had a wonderful time, and hope you have too. Uh, a cat just came in the room. Um, I'm Max. I'm Jackie. I'm Noel. And I'm Fooey. And we'll see you next time here on... Anachronismo! Gobble, gobble, motherfucker. Manifest Dave's the name. <laughs> <laughs>